Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Not For Attribution, Manitoba's first podcast on politics and government. My name is Dan Lett. I'm a uh, columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. Later in this episode, we will do a feature interview with former NDP Premier Gary Dewar and former Progressive Conservative leader Stuart Murray, uh, where they will tell us tall tales uh, and reveal the... uh, the hidden stories behind the 2003 provincial election campaign where they faced off against each other. I'm uh, joined by um, free press columnist and editorial writer and part-time university professor, Nigan Sinclair. Bonjour, hello. Hello. And uh, as always, uh, uh, Winnipeg Free Press legislative reporter, Jessica Botello-Urbanski. Hello, good pronunciation. Good pronunciation, yes. Well, I, I grew up with a guy named Urbanski. So the Patello part is the one that people don't pronounce properly. Is it? No, it's just, it's just the whole uh, the whole ordeal seems to trip people well, up. So you got for, it. For the record, it's a mouthful, but I've been practicing, so <laughs> I think it, it went well. Well done. Um, yes. So episode two of Not for Attribution, uh, the first episode, which featured an interview with Elizabeth May, and which of course is still available on the Ethernet. Uh, we, you know, the good news is we totally rocked the world of like two hundred people. So we rock their world. We, they have a completely different view of Manitoba politics. Thanks to us, uh, we really have nowhere to go but up now, I think, uh, in terms of our profile and reach. Um, so we're going to do, uh, as John Oliver says, a quick recap of the week that was. Um, this week in the campaign, we had access to two different polls. One was from a company in Toronto called Converso that we had never heard from before. And after we discuss the results, we may never hear from them again. Um, And then the second one is from Main Street, who are a pretty well-established polling company and are are quite infamous for dropping early polls in provincial election campaigns. So, um, and again, so you're watching the poll results and... In general, what did you what did you think? Is it has it did it open any new narratives in the election campaign for you? Well, I would have been interested to see if the Converso cam, the Converso poll hadn't been the first because the first because we haven't seen a lot of polling data. Uh, it just reminded us of how faulty poll polls can be, and uh, the fact that there was many problems with the poll from the get-go, which I think the Liberals got on top of. They pointed out right away that there was affiliations with Converso and unions and, and the NDP that was problematic, as well as their data itself, and they came out later, of course, to say that they had favoured the data from the north, different from the south, and anyways, and so what they illustrated was the uh, much more accurate numbers, I feel, which came out in the second poll. So parenthetically, for our listeners, the Converso poll uh, had uh, the NDP out in front. Uh, and um, most of us know that that couldn't possibly be true. So within about 48 hours of the, this poll hitting, the company admitted that they had, they had made a mistake in the weighting of the, um, of the data they collected. And so they republished, which showed uh, the, the Tories out in front uh, by a reasonable margin province-wide. But by that time, most reporters had, you know, lost all interest in ever speaking to Converso again. Or is that, you know, it, it's pretty much groupthink that yeah. they're, they're just not going to be a player. In, oh, we didn't yeah. bite on the poll to begin with at the Free Press, at least. Um, that came out last Friday as we were recording this podcast, actually. And I remember going back to my desk and looking at that and being like, hmm... That's a red flag, and if you go to their website, it's completely g- generic, no names, uh, no anything really to describe where this polling c- company even came from. So to release their first poll, one, during the provincial election campaign, and two, to just really have no background 
yeah, I'm glad we didn't fall for that. Now, it's interesting because when I was talking to the various parties, though, there still was concern about uh, it's a rogue poll. It's it you know it lacks all legitimacy, but still you know it has it has a funny blowback effect. So. For the NDP, there may have been an opportunity to energize their base, but then they got a they got the backlash or the whiplash when it turned out that it wasn't really real. Um, for the Conservatives, um, actually being way out in front through the whole campaign can actually suppress your own vote. Uh, I mean, that happened in the 2003 election campaign. Do you, do you, like, because we'll move on to Main Street, uh, which is a little bit more of a legitimate result. But do you think, or were you hearing that anybody was concerned that this poll was going to maybe, the Converso poll was maybe going to have a, a negative impact on any of the parties? I don't know about so much the parties because in when I was speaking to the parties, I think they all, including the NDP, were suspicious of the results. But the thing that I was most disappointed about, and I think that the public was most disappointed about, and I saw it almost immediately on Twitter, is just a general mistrust of polling and the media. And because this was only received traction because media agencies had then posted the, those numbers. Therefore, it just adds to the kind of ongoing dialogue that, you know, there's fake news out there and, and media doesn't actually report the truth and they, they favor a party over another or whatever. And so the, the, the loss of trust in media itself, I think, was really illustrated the best in this particular situation. Main Street came out later in the week, uh, is, and Main Street results, I think, Jessica, were more consistent with um, uh, the probe research uh, mm -hmm. poll results that we rely on in the free press that were taken before the election. Definitely. And with what we've heard so far in, in polls dating back through the last year or so, um, what was interesting to me about Main Street was the fact that they do a popularity ranking for the party leaders as well. And uh, none of the leaders ranked particularly well, all of the negative percentages. Um, but uh, Wab Canoe had was the most popular of the least popular uh, political leaders, despite all of the attack ads that the Tories have been running against him. So again, uh, for the benefit of uh, listeners who may not have seen the poll, the uh, province-wide, the uh, Conservatives, Progressive Conservatives, were out in front by double digits. Uh, and then, But in the city of Winnipeg, extremely tight. Now, this, this poll actually had the NDP out in front 40-35, uh, the margin of error, it, that's pretty much within the margin of error of because uh, it's a smaller sample size from Winnipeg. Um, that's not completely inconsistent with our own probe research numbers, which have basically shown, you know, the two parties competing neck and neck. Is it, do you really think, uh, Nagan, it's that close in the city? I think that the, uh, the, the gross disliking of Brian Pallister is very evident in the city and it's kind of a popular thing to dislike Brian Pallister. I was with a group of um, young voters this morning and uh, we were talking about the election and what they were interested in and and generally I mean there's this kind of cool aspect to dislike Brian Pallister and so that's an interesting thing I, but I don't also don't see that adding to the narrative around Wab Canoe like I don't see it cool to then go and support Wab Canoe I just sort of see a general dislike and it has almost exclusively to do with healthcare and the narrative that healthcare has uh, dominated which is that he's uh, out to break healthcare to bring in privatization and so on and so forth but um, I mean generally I think that the conservatives have underestimated the dislike of their leader and because if you look at most of the campaigning, they involve Brian Pallister. 
Yeah, and that's it is kind of weird. Um, I'll, I'll tell like in the in the 2016 election, <clears throat> Brian Pallister, uh, personal popularity ran behind his party, and that was unusual. Um, usually, a party that is a consensus picked to win an election, there is a lot more support uh, for the leader, and uh, but there wasn't. And this time around, his negatives are even bigger. <laughs> Uh, than they were the last time. So his his party province-wide is very comfortably ahead. He, though, had the largest uh, popularity deficit, the contrast between people who like him and people who don't like him, of all three leaders. And that it seems to me to be so weird. I'm just not sure if, how they can fix that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if there's any going back there in terms of how Pallister can rebuild some kind of popularity. Um, and it is kind of just made worse by these one-off comments that he makes from time to time at press conferences or in interviews. Uh, we heard one last week, uh, which he wrote a great column about, Nigan, um, about living next to a reservation growing up and, and understanding the way of life on reserves. Um, but it's just these little offhand remarks that certainly don't contribute to his popularity. I mean, I would add to, to that is, I mean, it really plays well to the base. I mean, I would say that in the base, which is always like a 30, 35%, uh, he's very popular. Like he is, he speaks their language. He speaks very, he speaks kind of rural Manitoba speak in relation to everything from economic relation to race relations to even, I think even in healthcare, like I think that generally Winnipeg is seen as kind of a bloated nightmare for many, much of the rural areas it gets far too much of the money, far too much of the attention and reducing that. And, and I think your column about austerity was such an important one because it really said like, uh, why are you not playing to what your strengths are? Uh, and Brian Pallister strengths are austerity and uh you know talking this kind of um at times divisive speak yeah i mean he's a very interesting study because um you know he's very firmly a traditional conservative on a lot of particularly fiscal policy and yet you you also get this desire that he wants to be seen as a caring leader you know that it's very important that people see his humanity and everything that he does. And the, the funny thing is that the longer you watch him, the less it clear it is, like you can see that desire uh, to, be, uh, to be respected as a caring man. It's harder, however, to see the evidence of the caring, I think, is, is the way I would describe it. I mean, that ad was just so off what I thought the message was going to be, which was I'm a independent leader standing up for Manitobans. But then the very first ad, the conservatives run in, in has sort of had Brian Pallister meeting all these racialized people, women playing basketball with disenfranchised kids. Like it, it was such an interesting ad. <laughs> You're just reminding me of we, we had a presser at a basketball court this week and he refused to shoot the ball <laughs> for fear that uh, there would be a picture of him missing the basket. I mean, he did palm it, which I thought was interesting you know that well which is it's you know having been a baller that that's its own talent being able to palm the ball in one hand but no it, uh, it's it also demonstrates how incredibly cautious uh, and restrained he is on the on the campaign trail more so than he is when he's the leader of the government yes oh, totally it's almost like we're seeing a completely different Brian Pallister on the campaign trail than we see at the legislature on a day-to-day -day basis Larry Kush my legislative reporter colleague and I were, were calling him Summer Brian because <laughs> he seems like such a, a more jovial person and uh, uh, out shaking hands, meeting all of his supporters and, and candidates and 
grin as far as the eye can see. He's a different person on the campaign trail. Uh, so right now, uh, given that we're talking about uh, summer politicians and summer campaigns, uh, we're going to turn our attention briefly to the 2003 uh, election campaign, which was not a summer campaign, but the weather was very pleasant when it took place. Uh, and uh, we had an opportunity this week to speak to former NDP Premier Gary Dewar and former Tory leader Stuart Murray, who faced off each, against each other in that election. And uh, they were gracious enough to give us a few minutes to talk about what it's like to lead a party into a provincial election campaign, and also uh, share with us a few stories that maybe no one has ever heard of before. So let's go to the interview now. Good day. I'm, uh, I'm here with uh, Stuart Murray and Gary Dewar. Uh, Stuart, uh, former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and uh, Gary Dewar, former premier and leader of the Manitoba Democrats. And uh, we're here to gain some insight into what it's like to lead a party into an election campaign. All the things that people don't know about the experience of leading a party uh, into an election campaign. Um, now, uh, uh, Stuart, you and Gary faced off against each other in the 2003 election. And if I, just for, uh, for listeners, um, it worked out pretty good for Gary. The election, not so much for you. Um, you know, tell me when you look back on it now, uh, what, what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, in fairness, uh, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. I mean, everybody said we were going to be annihilated because at that point, I mean, Gary had, uh, done, I mean, he'd run a, a very positive, popular government and uh, I was new. And, uh, so I think that at the end of it, uh, I think people said that we were going to go from 22 down to 10 seats. We lost a seat, but at the end of the day, I think we were pretty happy with the way it turned out. Not how you want it to be. Izzy Asper said to me one thing. He said, look, the beautiful thing about an election campaign is you all start at zero seats and see how you end up. So <laughs> I would love to have done better, but not as bad as it was projected to be. Yeah. Gary, you really, there was no fixed date election law at that time. So you pretty much, it, it was a quarterback audible for you. You could, you could call the election pretty much any time that you wanted. What was the, the, the strategy and um, uh, if I remember correctly, you keep this decision pretty close to the vest. I mean, not even your own staff would know really until the morning it was going to happen. Well, they may have known the night before, but uh, <laughs> certainly uh, you want to, you have a checklist of items you want to get achieved uh, before you call an election uh, and you check it off, as, as you know, because you, <laughs> you, uh, you asked me a question and I said, I have a checklist of a to-do list and I mentioned you to showed, you. Uh, you showed me the list. I actually. showed you the list. And I mentioned one of, the, one of the items on the list was uh, settling the Crown attorneys that were in a potential strike situation. And all of a sudden, you came into the gallery and said, check on yeah. that item, trying to flush me out of when I was going to call the election. I always liked a, uh, an election in June. Uh, I thought that was the best time to call an election, personally. Uh, That's just my own bias. Uh, it was after the potential flooding season. It was after the seating, uh, hopefully, was uh, conducted across the province uh, before summer, uh, where people enjoy the beautiful, beautiful scenery and, and, uh, and territory of Manitoba. So that's why I called it, uh, I believe I called it early June, uh, and uh, that, that went into the decision. Get the items done, best time to call an election, 
Uh, people are feeling pretty good moving into summer, so you want people in a good mood. If you're an incumbent government, you want them uh, pretty uh, gnarly when you're when you're in opposition. But that's just some of the thinking. So, Stuart, were you able to uh, read uh, Gary at all in terms of the? I mean, I mean, there's speculation for weeks, and then you know, and even days and hours before these things happen. But I I do remember Gary's staff walking up and down the hall the day before, going. I don't know. Like, do I have to turn in my cell phone? I like, I don't know what's going on. So, well, you know, the great thing about being in the legislative building, it's a world unto itself. And so, the stuff that uh, you know ricochets back and forth down the hallways. I mean, I think we were getting a sense that uh, that Gary was getting pretty ready. Uh, you know, I mean, nobody knew, but you're always. And I think that's one of the things. Uh, you know, when I when I became leader of the opposition, I, first lunch I had was with Duff Roblin, and he said, "Welcome to the hellhole of politics." <laughs> and you know, in opposition, you simply don't know. You always have to be ready you think you're ready so you know i mean uh nobody knew for sure but uh when game was on game was on now Stuart, obviously as leader of a party um and the the public's attention becomes so focused on the leaders during a campaign but so but what is that like what kind of expectations do you in, internally and externally do you go with were you prepared for for the experience of leading through an election campaign well, you know, it was my very first uh, general election as an elected official. I'd, I'd done many of them federally and provincially, both uh, behind the scenes. But uh, as an elected person, it was a great experience, a great learning curve. But I want to just share one story, because the whole purpose of being in politics is you have to have name recognition and people have to know who you are. You know, I'd spent time in the business community, but politics is a much broader scale. So one of the first events that we had, I thought it was a good idea that we would go out and meet a bunch of young kids in a school. So, you know, there's some danger from time to time, but in this particular instance, the, we knew the teacher had these grade two kids sitting in a semicircle, all nice and quiet and down. And the introduction was, we're very, very, very happy to have somebody who's very important here to talk to you today. I just wanted anybody to, does anybody recognize who this person is? And one little guy in the front row shot up his hand and was like, he must be a constituent, he's got him. Anyway, he said, yes, uh, do you know who this is? And the little guy said, yeah, I think he's a Walmart greeter. I thought at that point, man, I got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely the signal that you want to you wanna get on, you know, leading into an election. Um, Gary, the, um, uh, this was the first, like you had fought many elections actually before this. This was your fifth election, I think, uh, as leader of the NDP, 99, uh, or sorry, 88, 90, 95. Well, 88 was only half an election. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So we'll we'll only hold you half responsible. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I came in <laughs> in, the, in the last three weeks, but as leader. So, but it is the first election that was yours to lose. I, I mean, in all the other elections, uh, you were either not expected to win, or in '99, you know, you were in the mix. But certainly, the result was far from certain. So, is it different going into an election campaign well, with that it, kind of expectation? It's definitely different because when you're an incumbent government. Uh, you're defending your record, and you have to also campaign on what the future will look like. When you're running against somebody else for the first time, you know, they're responsible for their record. So it's totally different being a uh, uh, being un an underdog running in a campaign against an incumbent than being an incumbent and no longer the underdog. So it, it, it does, it, the psychology of campaigning changes. But I would also say, and Stu knows this full well as well, most of your campaigning is actually done before the election's called. 
the door-to-door visits before an election is called is much more effective. Visiting communities, much more effective, uh, well in advance of an election campaign. The public has a bit of a radar on showing up just on the four or five weeks in an election campaign. And whether you're conservative or New Democrat or liberal, uh, the public is pretty darn smart. And I would say that that's also very important. We're paying a lot of attention to it now in the media. But you do 99% of your work before the writ is dropped. Now, that um, in 2003, Stu, you, really the, the battle is won or lost for you really in Winnipeg. Um, and so that, that would be where you spent uh, most of your time campaigning, less in the solid rural seats that you had and really nothing in the north. Is that, so when you, you put together a strategy like that, it, it's, um, it opens you to, to some criticism. Uh, but also, the, the, it, I'm assuming it's just being pragmatic about about that election. You needed to be in Winnipeg. Yeah, I, the fact of life is is that uh, you know you can read the tea leaves pretty quickly, and uh, we knew that if we had an opportunity, it would be in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, I also think one of the challenges we had is that we didn't have a lot of money at that point. I mean, I think you know one of the things that Gary did, which at the time I think was hurting us, you know, in terms of the how the election law in terms of financing went. But I think in the end of it, I think it's the right thing to do because it's not a matter about who has the deepest pockets as a person. It's how broad the spectrum can be. So I think that for us, you know, we needed to be in Winnipeg. Uh, I think it was great to, uh, you know, the one thing I'd say is that, you know, the beauty of being a leader of a party is that you can go and are expected to be everywhere and can go everywhere. But you get a chance, frankly, from time to time when you forget about all this politics and you look around and sort of say, this is a beautiful community. I mean, I, I went to communities I'd never been to before. So met people, and I would just say this, you know, the one element is that, you know, your gut instinct, I think, is something that is something pretty important in politics. And I never once, never once got kicked off a doorstep. And I mean, at time to time, I was expecting that. That never happened to me. So it said that, you know, people were open for a conversation, and that meant a lot for me. Now, Gary, very early in this campaign, if I remember correctly, it was a stop in Portage La Prairie almost uh, the day after you called the election or even the day of, and then north. Uh, very early in the Brandon. campaign. Brandon. Portage, Brandon. Brandon. And, and then next. you got to go to next. Next in. Headingly, for sure, for the burger. Yeah. We, we had some great greasy spoon. Yeah, yeah no, no. The, yeah. We know them all. Yeah. We know all the great spots. So the, the north, at that t- uh, point, you know, if, if southwestern Manitoba is yellow dog, Tory country, uh, I think we, we did talk, talked about the north as orange dog country, pretty safe seats. So w- what's the... Like, what's the, the, the strategy of going north? Well, first of all, we would go north long before the election campaign in, in rural areas. Again, I come back to it's not a, it's not a four-week campaign. It's a four-year campaign for all of us. Uh, secondly, uh, we would go north on the weekends. Why did we do that? Uh, the media was centered in Winnipeg all the time. And, you know, unfortunately, they wouldn't move. Very many of the media wouldn't move outside of Winnipeg. Uh, ever and uh, so we would go up north on the weekends and i remember you went along with us on a weekend uh, up to thompson and cranberry portage flin flon and the paw and other times when we went to churchill i don't think you were there but we were glad to have some media coverage although it almost backfired <laughs> well i was going to say so um uh, we were talking about this before we came on air 
Uh, it seems that once the campaigns start, the leader's job is to not do anything stupid. Um, and and uh, the corollary to that is there are constantly opportunities presented to you to do something stupid. Um, and it, it's, it's remarkable, actually, that it because you've got like the leader and then you have the staff and the staff are running around. They're trying to troubleshoot everything and make sure every backdrop and every person and everything's perfect. But you just can't. Uh, like there's no way to control the events of a campaign, Stu? So I was in Austin, Manitoba at the Manitoba Agricultural Fair. And, uh, you know, they've got those beautiful, beautiful old steam engine tractors out there. And I grew up on a farm. So, you know, somebody said, hey, do you want to take a run of one of these things? And I said, yeah, sure, I know how to do that. The big difference is that the tractors I drew were sort of rack and pinion steering. I mean, you could actually, when you turn the wheel, the tractor turned. These big things, I mean, first of all, you're, you're sitting on it, it feels like an earthquake. You know, it's chugging, chugging, chugging along. And I was going towards some, you know, there were from people sitting in a, you know, stands because, you know, you're on display there. And uh, one kind of guy said, you should start turning the wheel. And I was like, ah, come on, I know how to drive this thing. And then I realized you got to turn the wheel about three times before it moves about two feet. So at some point, people's eyes were getting pretty big as I was getting towards them. And it was like, okay, this is maybe not a good idea. I'm not sure if they still allow politicians on tractors there or not. But it was a great experience. Well, uh, no fatalities, no injuries there. That was good. Uh, uh, Gary, you came probably closer to a, 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 a literal and figured of self-inflicted wound in Cranberry Portage, and I, I was there to witness it, actually. You were. It was, uh, there was a fire going on, a celebration fire, and uh, people were chopping wood from time to time, and I, of course, not being Paul Bunyan, but having been on a few fishing trips, thought I could pull up, get the axe going and uh, chop a little wood and uh, have a little fun, and, and I started to chop a piece of wood and it was gnarly wet and it was I the green, chopped the and I piece chopped of wood in the pile. and I yeah. chopped and I didn't want to quit and I should have quit early and I kept going and I could have chopped my foot off and you would have been the witness to the world of that of this endeavor uh, but I didn't uh, but it was uh, not the wisest thing to do no, and I, the wood was never finished. No, I think it was... <laughs> the piece of wood was never in that fire. It, it, was, it was too wet. It was about the fourth or fifth swing. Like, it's one of those classic, uh, <laughs> you know, camping stories. Yeah. Nicked the corner, and the axe went flying by his leg, and, and Gary's communications person fainted. <laughs> well, he would give him his arm to be, you know, sort of the next premier as he was. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that give, Gary does. Give the leg, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, um, the... Um, uh, you made uh, you both have made sort of a point that, and you said you never got kicked off a, a, a doorstep. I find that it, not in the presence of a politician, people can be very angry. On, certainly, with online comments and things, they can be very abusive and whatever. But <clears throat> I find that uh, when when you actually go out and meet them, uh, they are really are more respectful, even if they're not they're not your people. They they tend to be uh, they tend to be more respectful. Do you do you think that's still uh, the circumstance now that people, when they actually get to meet you, 
get a much better impression. And that's part of the reason why leaders campaign. Yeah, no, Dan, it's a very good point. And I think, you know, as Gary said, part of the, the, the election is really the four years leading up. I mean, constantly being out, meeting people, going to a doorstep. I mean, the odd time you'd knock on a door and people's first reaction is, is there an election? It's like, no, no, it's, you know, I mean, but that would be their sense, right? Because typically people are used to just being knocked on when there is an election. So, I, but I agree with you. I, I do think that uh, that's that kind of that retail politics, that face-to-face, the opportunity to sort of look at somebody in the eye, kind of see where they're at. But the other side of it is when you're running for something, you get a chance to sort of look in the window of somebody's house and you get a chance to see what their lives are like. And I think at the end of the day, I think that's why most people do get in politics because they want to see how they can make that life better. But I think that door-to-door, that day-to-day, that eye-to-eye retail politics, I think is still very, very important today, despite all the social media. Now, um, despite the fact that, that, I mean, it really is an important currency in a campaign, there are, uh, you know, political staff try to keep the leaders out of situations that where it could go badly. I mean, the one that I always remember is uh, the the risk-reward of, of throwing out the first pitch or kicking a football, uh, you know, at a bomber game. That that's You walk out in front of a huge crowd like that, it's gonna, they're going to make a funny noise. But I do remember on, an, on that same trip up north, when we went to Thompson, uh, I was desperate to see the Trappers, uh, which is the, one of the most famous watering holes in all of Manitoba. It's a bar, yeah, Dan. It's and, a bar. You could say that in yeah, this room. It's a bar. <laughs> and, and Steve Ashton, who was the MLA at the time, was like, no, 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 we can't go, we can't go to the tra- – it's Saturday night. It's going to be crazy. We can't go there. And I kept talking about it. And sooner, it finally, because our hotel was right across the parking lot from the Trappers, Gary said, come on, let's go. We're going. And, of course, you know, Steve's sweating bullets, and we go in, and it's uh, – uh, I didn't know how it was going to go, actually. Uh, but it, there, was, uh, there was something playing. The band was playing something that seemed to pave your way into the crowd uh, when you walked in. Do you remember the music that was playing? I don't remember it, but... It was Garth Brooks. It was your favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got friends in all the low places. That's right. Where the whiskey burns and the beer chases your blues away. I'll be okay. So, yes, I do remember that now that you remind me. And uh, we had a... I thought we had a good day. Uh, Again, we had a couple good announcements in Thompson. And uh, then we're having the odd beer in a bar. And uh, the Trappers is a famous bar in Thompson, Manitoba, and you got to go there. So we, we go to where the people are. Now, having said that, you've got to be yourself on the campaign. I mean, you have really brilliant staff that get you ready for what are the questions the media are going to ask and what's, what's the backdrop. But I think my advice to anybody campaigning is people can see through you if you're not comfortable in your own skin. So just, just and Stu was always comfortable in his own skin. I was always comfortable in my own skin. And I was always comfortable having a beer in a bar. Well, it, you know, I remember when we walked in the bar, uh, Steve Ashton said, look, I'm going to go find a table so we can sit down. He was still really nervous. And when he came back, I, I had been sort of following Gary into the crowd. By this time, the Garth Brooks is at the chorus. And there is Gary arm in arm with like a line of people all singing, all singing the chorus, and and I looked at Steve and I said, "So I, you know, we're good, right? You know, like everything's weird." He was never comfortable that entire night, but uh, being yourself. I mean, at some point, uh, sorry, go ahead, Gary. Yeah. This is the problem of being a leader because if you're a candidate and your leader screws up, you may lose your job. So I can understand his his concern. Yeah, uh, it's being yourself. Uh, is tough when uh, the 
you know, the machinery of the campaign is trying to create an image. And, you know, and you had your people, you know, working the crowd, trying to do everything. Like, at some point, is it disorienting? You know, like, uh, should I say what I'm thinking right now? Should I not say what I'm thinking? Uh, is it, it, there's a tension there. Yeah, no, and I think Gary made a good point. It, you know, the fact of life is you have to be who you are because at the end of the day, that's who they're electing or going to elect or hopefully elect. And I think that uh, that's really important. I, I just share one story along that line. I, I was, uh, I think it was at a chamber event outside of uh, Winnipeg. And, you know, you get a chance to these leaders' events, and so everybody gets a chance to speak. And, you know, I, I felt that I'd given one of the best speeches I'd ever given. I, you know, kind of get everybody fired up, and you want them to go out and, you know, raise money and put lawn signs up and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, a person came up to me afterwards and said, uh, you know, um, I have a question for you. And I thought, you know, here we're going to get into a great discussion. It's good, good, good debate over the policy of what I just announced. person looked at me, square in the eye, and said, where did you get your glasses? I said, okay, you know, I can tell you, you know, if I get a 10% off, you're all, you know, tell you it's book optical. But, you know, it's like, what about the speech? Anything you want to talk about? No, I like those glasses. They look good on you. All right. Yeah, it's uh, it's sometimes the macro messaging that you have no control over, and thank goodness you were wearing fashionable eyewear. Always do. No, always do. <laughs> thank you, Book Optical. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, the last question I'm going to ask you before we wrap up, and this is probably the the toughest question, puts you a little bit on the spot, but it, you know, if you if you had to uh, come up with one fundamental truth uh, about being the leader of a political party uh, in a, an election, provincial election campaign. What's the one thing that was the most important thing that you learned, the one fundamental truth? Well, you've got to enjoy the people you're with and, and the people you're visiting and spending time with them. And you've got to remember uh, the great stories you get over in the campaign trail. Uh, one of my favorite stories is actually being in Churchill. And uh, I love the belugas and I love the polar bears. I wouldn't recommend you hand a polar bear a Coca-Cola because they'll eat you. Uh, but we were flying over uh, a great big male running, a uh, male polar bear running along the tundra, and uh, it all of a sudden s sat right down. And I asked the folks in the helicopter, what's going on? And, and uh, the individual, one of the individuals said, well, that bear has been locked up in the jail before. And I said, well, how do you know that? Well, because we tranquilized the bears in the butt and that bear is so smart, he's sitting down on his butt so he won't get tranquilized and put in the polar bear jail again. So you've got to remember these wonderful stories and experiences. Not only and, that, it's uh, an important lesson for political yeah, leaders. Is, like when the report, you're living the dream. Come. You're living the dream. When the journalists come, you sit down right away. Yeah, notice, so Gary and I are sitting down. We're sitting down. <laughs> yeah, right. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, I think that the other, you know, element is, you know, you have to enjoy the experience because the fact of life is, you know, a lot of people talk about getting involved in politics, you know, they, you know, they never do it. They never make the commitment. And so my hat's off to all of those people, regardless of whether it's the Green, the Liberals, the NDP, the Tories that are running in this election. Well, good on you. Good for you for doing that. Uh, I would just say that, uh, you know, enjoying the stories, we were uh, doing an event at the Elkhorn uh, Inn, and I had a van with uh, an air conditioner on top of the van. It was our campaign unit. 
And uh, as we pulled up, a big crowd there, and, and of course somebody misjudged the height of the vehicle and the, uh, the sort of the overhang, and so, boop, there goes the air conditioner straight off. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, those things happen, uh, you know, they're not planned, but if you can't laugh about them, I mean, whether that happens or not does not mean you're going to be a good or bad premier, right? It's just you have to sort of live it and learn it. Well, that, that's, that's the main reason why we're doing this, so we can laugh about all these things now that we might not have laughed about then. Well, it's interesting. A year ago, Stu and I were at an event at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights uh, celebrating the Mandela exhibit, celebrating Canada's role uh, on uh, the anti-apartheid uh, action. And I thought to myself, uh, here we are in the forks. I was a rookie cabinet minister dealing with the forks and I was dealing with a conservative Jacob and a liberal Bill Norrie and I was the new Democrat and we worked together got a lot of media flack at the time I called it the nitpickers convention later on uh, but the forks and the museum you know for all those people going door-to-door -door right now and all their families that are backing them up and going community to community uh, it you do make a difference to Manitoba. The democracy is very important in our province. And I say to all the people that are listening, I hope you're listening, uh, vote. Because you can't complain after if you don't like the results. Absolutely. Um, gentlemen, uh, thank you to both of you coming out. I think you've added considerably to our understanding of what it's like to lead a party in a... Uh, in a political campaign? Well, I just hope in this particular instance, because it never happened in the ledge, I never got the last word. I mean, <laughs> Gary always got the last word. I hope that I can just sort of echo what he said and say to everybody, you know, good on you for being out there as candidates, and more importantly for the public, get out, vote, support somebody. And, and I'm going to hit the button so Stu can live out his dream. Uh, and uh, thanks very much to Gary Dewar, former Premier and NDP leader, Stuart Murray, former leader of the Progressive Conservatives. Thanks very much, guys, for being with us. Pleasure. Cheers. Okay, then. So there you have it. Uh, uh, Hidden Tales, uh, the untold story of the 2003 election campaign. Um, one of the, it, it's interesting, it, it makes me think that one of the untold stories of this campaign, literally, is going to be the uh, relative importance of Indigenous issues, which ha has not been played a, a role in this campaign. Nobody's really talking about it, except for one very small and very weird comment by the, the Premier of Manitoba. But, uh, Nigan, um, is there, are we missing an opportunity to talk about Indigenous issues in this province? I mean, in between elections, it seems politicians want to talk a lot about it. Now that the campaign has started, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to talk about it. Well, my first column about the provincial election was sort of five issues to watch. And uh, I think what happened then is other media agencies sort of went, oh, well, we're interested in that as a story thread for the week, asked all the leaders, uh, and then got various answers. But they were very quick answers. They're almost... Like, yeah, let's move on to the real stuff, which is healthcare and so on and so forth. But, you know, Indigenous peoples have been trying to play a role in this election for the very first time in history. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs has chosen to endorse a candidate. That's unprecedented. And what it tells you is, uh, I would say that much of that endorsement of the NDP's Wab Canoe doesn't have, you know, very little to do with his indigeneity, although it might have something to do with it, probably relationships or, you know, he was the only leader to come and speak to the, uh, at the AMC annual general meeting. Um, but 
it's a real dislike for some of the austerity measures that Brian Pallister's brought in and how they've impacted uh, Indigenous communities. So right now, I'm working on a story involving uh, healthcare in the North and some of the ways healthcare has been cut to really make life and death situations in the North for First Nations peoples. Uh, and this isn't just about um, getting to Winnipeg. This is also about uh, you know nurses stations and and doctors coming in and being having availability to come in. So. Uh, indigenous issues, uh, like in every in every provincial or federal election, they always have a weird position because indigenous peoples are like we are autonomous people, but then when it comes to elections, there's still this reminder that there's a relationship there, and uh, indigenous nations inevitably get involved, like we saw in the uh, federal election. We will see with this upcoming federal election, but I think for the first time, really in Manitoba history that I know of, uh, indigenous issues are really they could play a big role, but they are not. And no party seems to really want to take the lead on it. So if it's not uh, to maybe to vote for something, but against something, does that mobilize an in indigenous vote? I mean, I think for as long as I've been a political reporter, I have imagined an election where, uh, because of geography in particular, where indigenous people really could shape the result. I mean, they really have that potential to shape the result because of the ridings that are large in geography, small in population, and have really significant uh, indigenous populations. But we never seem to get the turnout and never seem to get the engagement. Do you see, do you think there's any potential in this election for a higher level of engagement and turnout? Well, I, I don't see the parties speaking to Indigenous issues per se. Like the NDP has a policy in their platform, which is they say they're going to create an Indigenous caucus, right? And particularly around the issue of murder, missing Indigenous women, and also women's issues, Indigenous women's issues. Uh, the question might be is what if there were no Indigenous women elected? Uh, I, I don't think that's unlikely, but it, if what it would happen, uh, who would lead that caucus then? Uh, would they appoint them? And there's uh, that, that kind of question isn't happening because people aren't pushing those issues. Healthcare has dominated this election so deeply. But, you know, on, on every kind of trail, healthcare is an important issue to Indigenous people. So I think Indigenous peoples are also interested in that issue. Uh, what I would say is that because the par parties aren't leading the discussion, therefore there's not a whole lot of feedback or interest um, to continue to engage or tell vibrant stories, thorough stories about the about Indigenous peoples. But we have so many pressing issues like the, 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 the situation involving Lake Winnipeg diversion, the situation involving the Frac Sand project, which we're now going on month five or six occupation with uh, Camp Morningstar. Uh, we have massive issues involving uh, inequity and the issue involving the Manitoba Métis Federation, who, who Pallister has spent almost an entire term uh, declaring war against <laughs> to say, we're going to toss every agreement that you've made with the previous NDP government down, which they had made plans for the future in order to create self-government. Self I mean, we have major, major issues which could play into this provincial election campaign, but have yet to carry, carry any traction. Do you have any hope that it'll become, even for a day or a couple of days, it'll actually become uh, its own uh, theme for the election? Uh, that, you know, that parties will start to deliver uh, 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 platform planks on Indigenous issues? Or is it going to be up to the, the news media to sort of 
press them into responding to these things? Well, my sources t tell me that the NDP is going to pick up um, on the Indigenous endorsement, the AMC endorsement, and they're going to make that a major story, which will inevitably be lead to other questions for the other parties. Um, I see almost no um, driving discussion from the Liberals or any major policy platform announcements that are going to drive that con the conversation. And if it's not the economy and if it's not uh, land and resource, it, the Conservatives don't want anything to do with it. Like if they want to talk about, um, if for instance, when Brian Pallister made the announcement that he'd done more for the reconciliation than anybody, uh, I wrote a column to say that reconciliation is not returning people to homes. It's not um, uh, building a road for a much needed road. Like that has nothing to do with reconciliation. That's called treating people like human beings. And for the Conservatives, the only conversation they really want to be uh, having is really on economic uh, issues, which I think they have some traction from, particularly involving cannabis and involving um, some, uh, you know, jobs in Manitoba Hydro and so on. Well, uh, you know, let's hope that the parties themselves have some wherewithal. Jessica, do you, do you see them uh, engaging on Indigenous issues or is it? I think it's going to be more us prompting them to engage, as as you mentioned there. Um, any question you throw at Wabkinu, he manages to turn it around and have some kind of health care component in his response. So that's really all they want to focus on this election, knowing that that's Pelster's weakest point. So, so one of the, the great things about podcasts is that... Um, you get to kind of make it up as you go along. So this is spontaneous story idea generation, uh, a la not for attribution. I think that in the next week leading up to our next issue, we are going to ask all three party leaders to define reconciliation. Give us the elevator pitch. What? Well, how would you define reconciliation? And then we're going to ask, uh, we're going to record those, and then we're going to play them for people probably covering our eyes at the same time. But still, it would, to me, it would be interesting to see um, when you ask somebody uh, a broad but impactful question like that, how are they going to respond? Do you, do you, or is it just uh, going to be too ugly to, to really contemplate? I don't know if I want to hear those responses. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard so many political responses to what reconciliation is now since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, I don't know. What are you thinking on? I, yeah, I mean, I don't think the issue is defining reconciliation as much because you can speak the right speak and you could say things like relationship and cooperation. And even when Pallister canceled the um, uh, the agreement with the Manitoba Metis Federation, I, I think he used language that was persuasive. He said, you know, consultation is not about buying off people. And, and in many ways, that agreement could be construed as paying off people to not sue the provincial government. And, and so I could see why that would play well. But in the end of the day, uh, if both sides, which is what that agreement was about, agree to not take each other to court or not to not be in conflict, and part of that involves money, then that might encapsulate a sense of reconciliation. So reconciliation is about partnership and about relationship, but I'm more interested in how, what does that look like on the ground than in actually using a bunch of rhetorical language. And like that's why the endorsement with, of Wab Canoe by the NDP, like I can't underemphasize how interesting that is. By the be AMC. Because the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs never in history, and I know chiefs that abstain from that vote, we weren't allowed to cover it because, because of a various issues that are going with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs right now, but but 
uh, I know chiefs that abstain from that vote by saying that the purpose of AMC is not to get involved with Canadian politics. Uh, we, we, ca- we talk about autonomy, therefore we should live autonomously, but the idea that they're going to endorse a provincial candidate, never mind a federal candidate, like a, a provincial candidate, which we have time and time again said the province doesn't have a relationship through us through treaties, it's the federal government. It is such a weird anomaly in Canadian history. Uh, I don't think people realize the impact of that decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, the NDPs, I think, take that, they're going to bring it out. They're going to talk about it. I hope that there's a conversation, and I will be happily to write a column about how complicated First Nations politics is when you talk about provincial elections. Once again, uh, as uh, all things in politics uh, are like this, uh, it's about walking the walk and not talking the talk. That's, uh, it applies to reconciliation as much as it does to almost anything that government does. Um, we're going to wrap up on that note, and so I want to thank very much, uh, first of all, uh, Gary Dewar and Stuart Murray for giving us some of their time, and for Gary Dewar attempting to sing uh, a little Garth Brooks, and uh, to Negan Sinclair and Jessica patella Urbanski uh, for joining us for a discussion today, and uh, we have, can you believe this, two more weeks of the provincial election campaign left. I, when I realized that today... I almost didn't believe myself, Uh, but we have two more weeks, which is at least two more episodes of Not For Attribution, and so I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Nigan, and thanks to Jessica. Miigwech. Thank you. Thanks.